Amen. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians will be in chapter 4 this morning. As we continue our study of this book, uh, next week we'll take a, a break for Easter and be in 1 Corinthians 15. This morning we're going to be considering spiritual atrophy and its cure. Paul diagnoses some problems, some symptoms in this church, and also tells us that there is one cure. And as we walk through this text, we'll see this central truth. The cure for spiritual atrophy is Christ-like spiritual formation, or as Paul puts it in this passage, Christ formed in you. So Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to follow along as I read aloud. Paul writes, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. Kind of a perplexing passage in a lot of ways. So I was reading this this week, I was reminded of a childhood friend of mine by the name of Nathaniel. Nathaniel, when he was born to his parents, he was a, a joyful little guy, but as he uh, grew older, they began to sense that there were some things, potentially difficulties in his development that they weren't sure were quite right. In fact, I didn't quite understand it all as a little kid, but even though he was about two years older than I, uh, so initially, you know, in his development, he is ahead of me, but as we grew older, it went like this, and he actually began regressing. Nathaniel had a condition known as muscular dystrophy. It's a genetic condition that really is irreversible. And over time, things that feel normal when you're young, uh, soon the child may have problems uh, sitting or walking normally. And I can remember playing basketball with Nathaniel and realizing he could not function like a lot of children. Now, he had a great spirit. We did a, a lot of things together, played some sports. We took some music lessons together. But over time... I realized Nathaniel wasn't able to develop at a normal rate. Now, muscular dystrophy is a permanent genetic condition. It's not something that we really know how to change. Now, probably there are relatively statistically few of those, but many people have had muscular atrophy. 
In fact, Josephine is getting this blessing right now after her recent surgery. If you've ever broken a bone or something like that, and you don't use a muscle, it, it shrinks over time. I can remember in middle school, my dad was playing basketball on an outdoor court, and uh, the way the court was paved, at the edge it broke off, and he broke his ankle. My dad was always a big, strong man, so it's a weird thing to look at your dad's calf, and it's much smaller than the other one. Ever had this experience? Maybe you tear an Achilles, and, and one leg looks quite different from the other leg. Atrophy is the shrinkage of muscle from lack of use or exercise. Like muscular atrophy, spiritual atrophy can be a temporary condition. But there are aspects in which it comes to all of us some of the time. There are times where perhaps for uh, lack of zeal, lack of discipline, lack of rhythm, or some trial where we sort of atrophy. Our spiritual muscles wither on the vine, so to speak, and we're no longer the, the muscular beings that we once were. And Paul addresses this church as a church in spiritual atrophy. He says, you have known God, you've been known by God, but you have been sliding back into an old way of life. Atrophy. And as he addresses this problem, Paul identifies three symptoms of spiritual atrophy and then tells us the only cure. And the first symptom is a lack of spiritual growth in verses 8 through 11. Now, if Paul were an artist, he would not be impressionistic. He's an artist who paints in strongly contrasting colors. This is not shades of blue. He's black and white. Red, green, yellow, purple. These are opposite sides of the color wheel. Because he's painting in contrasting pictures. Bondage. Freedom. Law. Promise. Old covenant. New covenant. And he continues that strategy here in verses 8 and 9. Formerly you did not know God, but now you have come to know God. So Paul's taking historical contrasts and he's personalizing them to these first century Christians. So here's his basic argument. You were slaves formerly, but now in Christ you are free. But you're acting like slaves. You're going back to your old way of life. The well-known story, Luke chapter 15. Lost coin, lost sheep, and the lost son, the prodigal son. You remember the story, the son leaves. He comes to the end of himself and he finds himself in a pigsty eating pig slop. Now that's in a get-your-attention kind of moment. And he wakes up and he says, what am I doing? The servants back home eat better than this. So he goes home, and as he comes home, his father welcomes him, throws a calf on the barbie, and throws a party. Welcome home, my son. Imagine that there were an epilogue to this story in Luke chapter 15. What we have is a story of the celebration. The son returns. Older son is jealous. But the last we meet the prodigal is celebrating with his father. But imagine in Luke 15b, the next morning we find that son out in his dad's pigsty, eating pig slop. It wouldn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense to be a welcomed, adopted child and go back to the old way of life. 
It'd be a crazy end to that story, and it's a crazy thing for any of us to do too. Because we know God through faith, verse 8 tells us, we were enslaved to those by nature that are not God's. Now verse 9 identifies these not gods for us as the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. Now this is not the first time we've met these elementary principles. These are not principles as in principles of schools. They are principles as in building blocks, ABCs. These are basic underlying principles of the world. They appear in Galatians 4.3. So what is it that these Christians are doing? They are living as Christians, but as though they can make themselves righteous or more righteous under the law. So they're trying to live according to the law, but Paul accuses them not of living according to the law, but rather of living according to the worthless elementary principles of the world. Now this is an odd accusation because these principles of this world are elements of pagan worship. Verse 10 adds that you observe days and months and seasons and years. So in the Jewish calendar, they have their own observances that they keep. The Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, the, the, the Passover. Like pagans, they have their feasts. And like pagans, they're valuing their feasts over faith in Christ. So Paul says to live under the law is to live like a pagan. You can imagine this is a very offensive accusation. To rely on anything other than Christ and Christ alone for anyone is idolatry. So the question, the, the way this question works is a warning about how close the danger is. How can you turn back? Or look out, you're about to turn back. You are turning back. Look out. How can you do this? You want to be slaves again? So what's the key change that takes place. Formerly, he says, you did not know God. But now, he says, you know God, or are rather known by God. Now, as God's word often does, he's giving us different perspectives, different angles on salvation. Now, we always tend to look at salvation from our perspective. There's a moment in time whether we're consciously aware of that moment or not, where we come to faith in Christ. And we tend to personally, individually view salvation in light of that perspective. And this is true. It's a true perspective. That's how the gospel works. There's a moment for all of us. Sometimes it's a gradual dawning or sometimes it's a lightning bolt kind of moment where we come to recognize that we're sinners, that apart from God's grace, we're condemned under God's wrath, and we turn to faith in Christ. We're born into this world sinners. So we respond to that news by trusting the good news that Jesus Christ saves anyone who comes to him in faith. But imagine with me this morning, so to, to take, to take the, the metaphor, we're like a child born into God's family. Now when children are born into your family, the moment that that child started from his perspective, we call his what? Birthday. We celebrated one this week. When you turn five, it's a big deal. There, are little, there is nothing better in the world when you're four than turning five. Birthday. But from my perspective, that began long before that birthday five years ago. I mean, there was prayer before that child ever appeared. There was a name chosen years 
before we ever knew we would have that child. And for months before the child actually appeared visibly, he was growing. We knew he was there. So Paul says, we come to know God, we're birthed, or are known by God. John writes it this way, we love him because he first loved us. If you know God through faith in Christ, you don't know God because you were smart enough to figure it out. Smart enough to figure out what the dumb people can't see. You know God because you've been known by God. You love God because you've been loved by God. When we become Christians, it's part of God's redemptive plan established before the foundation of the world. We know God because God first knew us. Part of God's grace in the gospel is taking people who aren't seeking him, who aren't looking for him, people who aren't good, and pursuing us by his grace. It's why the 19th century poet Francis Thompson wrote a powerful poem entitled The Hound of Heaven. It pictures God as a hound on a scent chasing sinners in love. God pursues us and he chases us. God is a God who doesn't want any to perish, but that all would reach repentance. Friend, if you are sitting here this morning, God is pursuing you. If you are here this morning, it is an opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to recognize before a holy God that you are accountable to this creator, to this judge. To be known by him and to know him. Our world tells us that the message of Christianity is outdated. It was okay back then, but we live in an enlightened age today. But if you believe that, you will walk away from this message. You'll walk away from the reality that there is always and ever has been only one way of salvation. As the apostles preached in Acts 4 verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. But there is no other name other than the name of Jesus under heaven given among men by which we must be and indeed can be saved. Perhaps you've never heard this message before. Or perhaps you've heard it time after time after time. But today, God is calling you. Oh, friend, would you turn? Receive God's mercy by faith and trust Jesus today. Today is the day of salvation. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 is one of the most profoundly encouraging verses in God's word. Paul writes there, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is good news. No matter what you do or how hopeless life seems in Christ, no matter how bad a job you're doing, your labor is not in vain. Yet, the same apostle who wrote those words also wrote verse 11. I'm afraid, Paul says, I labored over you in vain. The word that Paul uses here carries the idea of being empty or being without purpose. 
these Galatian Christians aren't growing in Christ. Rather, they're atrophying, they're shrinking. They're trending back toward their old way of life. Now, we're here talking about the subject of birthdays. I also have a birthday coming up, and I'm not greeting it with the same joy that my four-year-old met his five-year-old birthday. You see, I'm about to cross the Rubicon. I'm turning 40 this summer. In 40, kind of culturally represents being over the what? See, you knew it. Being over the hill. Now, I, you know, want to live in denial of this fact, but my body keeps telling me that it's true. Well, even the phrase over the hill communicates something, whether it happens at 30 or 40 or 70 or whenever you're crossing the hill, peaking. It tells us that there is in our physical lives a rise and inevitably a decline. It doesn't matter if you're Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Tiger Woods, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig. It doesn't matter what era you're in or what science is available to you. There comes a day when they say, Father Time wins. No one beats Father Time. He comes for all of us. There comes a day when those things you could do, you no longer can do. There comes a day when the person who never wants any help has to ask for help. Because there is a rise and a fall. Now in Christ, there are ups and downs for all of us. But ours isn't an over-the-hill kind of faith. You see, physically, you can be the oldest, frailest person, yet also the youngest, most zealous, vibrant Christian. Take someone like Lib Godfrey. Some of you don't know her, but many of you do. Lib is a longtime faithful member of Ashley River Baptist Church. She lives at Harmony at West Ashley, which if you don't know what that is, is a retirement center in West Ashley. She lives there because she's lived a long time. But if you spend time with Lib, you don't meet an atrophied Christian. You see, to spend time with Lib is to be refreshed by the Word. It's to meet someone who knows the sweetness of knowing Christ and walking with Christ. The joy of being redeemed by a Savior who loves us. You see, our Christian life is like our physical life in that sometimes we have ailments, colds that set us back. But Christian growth is ultimately eternal growth. It's not a rise and fall. There's an eternal ascension. There's a sweetness to knowing Christ for all of life that surpasses even the zeal of that first moment. Oh, it may settle in differently than that childlike faith, but it grows into a steady, steadfast sweetness. The security of walking with Jesus for a lifetime, of knowing God and knowing I am known by God. Paul's concerned for these Christians. Because rather than evidence of spiritual growth, there's evidence of spiritual atrophy. You see, spiritual growth never comes to passive people. To coast in your spiritual life is to crash in your spiritual life. 
I mean, like physical exercise, there's joy and growth that comes with reps. You have to have reps to grow. And so as we pause here for a moment, what does your spiritual growth tell you about the vibrancy of your relationship with Christ? Paul moves from concern for the lack of spiritual growth to his second symptom that he diagnoses, zeal without perseverance. Paul is rhetorically brilliant, but he's also a tender shepherd. And he communicates here his concern for the church, and as he does so, he does it with a remarkable heart for their discipleship. He introduces his heart by making an appeal to them in verse 12. He says, become like me, for I have become like you. Become as I am. 1 Corinthians 4, 16, Paul writes, be imitators of me. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. He is patterning his life after Jesus. And one way that he imitates Jesus is by becoming like these Galatian Christians. Verse 12, I become like you are. You see, Paul, though he was a Jew, became like a Gentile for the sake of winning Gentile people to Jesus. This is how he put it in 1 Corinthians 9. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Paul is free from the law. And he calls the church to this freedom, yet he willingly, freely serves others in love. Why? So he might win them to Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, he goes on, To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I might, that I might win those under the law. Those outside, I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Why does he do this? I do it all, he says, for the sake of the gospel, that I might share it with them in its blessings. So set aside for a moment your rights. Set aside for a moment your way. And ask yourself this question, how might God call us as middle class Southern Americans to set aside our rights for the sake of sharing the gospel with those who need it? The gospel is the most important message. What can you set aside to share it with someone else? Now, initially, the Galatian Christians, they did great. Verse 12, Paul says, you did me no wrong. Paul was in a difficult spot when he arrives in Galatia. Verse 13 tells us he had a bodily ailment. He was pretty sick when he got there. And it wasn't something he could recover from. Verse 14 tells us that it required great effort from them. My condition was a trial to you. They had to care for him. But they received and blessed him. Verse 15, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. But since then, not so much. Verse 15 goes on. What has become of your blessedness? What happened? Have I become your enemy? Those who once loved and embraced and cared for Paul are now treating him as an enemy. What changed? Verse 16. 
Paul became their enemy by telling them what? The truth. You see, when this church received Paul's ministry and message, they treated him as a cherished brother. But when the truth rubbed them the wrong way, when it stepped on their toes, they reacted strongly. And this didn't happen in a vacuum. Because not only is Paul seeking to reach these people, there is another group. There are people that seek to reach these people by making them feel good about themselves. These people, third symptom, are open to flattery. These false teachers, verse 17, they make much of you. There are preachers that make much of themselves. Preachers that make much of their audience. And then there are preachers that make much of Jesus. The strategy here is pretty clear. To win these people to their message, these teachers kissed up to their audience. So glad you're here. Isn't it nice that all the good Christian people are here? We're not like all the bad other people out there. Spend our lives making us feel good about us. Now, look, it is our job as leaders and as Christians to make people feel welcome loved especially those who are new this is why paul says in second corinthians 13 before coronavirus greet one another with a holy kiss now in our culture we do the holy handshake or the holy fist bump or the half holy elbow bump so of course we're supposed to be warm and welcoming that's why, as a staff team, we regularly ask, what is it like, not for everyone who's been coming here for 30 years, but what's it like to walk onto our campus for the first time? Like, next Sunday when you come to church, put on that hat. Imagine you've never been here. What's that like for that person? And Paul praises the church for the way they welcome him, verse 18. He says it's good, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. So this isn't about welcoming people warmly and building them up. What is it about? Well, the key phrase is in verse 18. It's good to be made much of for a good purpose. But these false teachers, verse 17, make much of you not for a good purpose. What is their motive? Verse 17. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. They don't want you depending on Jesus. They don't want you loving Jesus Jesus is a license to get you to love them. They want you to depend on them to love them. They don't want to make much of Jesus. They want to make much of them, their ministry, their teaching. Well, it's not hard to look very far and see this didn't stop in the first century. There are people all over doing ministry in the name of Jesus who are actually building personal kingdoms or brands. There are books and schools of thought and pastors who talk about building your brand as a church it's all over charleston but sadly it's not just out there the temptation toward this lies in every one of us and in every local church brothers and sisters we cannot be about ashley river baptist church as a brand or a business or an organization. 
We can't be about being the big church on Savannah Highway. That's the biggest church next to the highway, but no one knows where it is. The cure for this isn't to run the other way. It's to be so consumed with Jesus that we find our happiness in him. It's to be so filled with the Spirit that people see the evidence and power of the Spirit's work among us. That we're so committed to the Word of God that we embrace all of it, including the parts that are uncomfortable. Because there are some parts, it would be more comfortable if God didn't include them. But he did. And it's our job to embrace and submit to all of it. That we're so committed to the spread of the gospel that we rejoice in the evidence of gospel growth, whether it happens here or somewhere else. Because it's never about us and never about our brand, our number, our organization. It's not ultimately the growth of Ashley River Baptist Church that should get us out of bed in the morning. But the growth of the gospel, the growth of the name of Jesus, the fame of his name to spread to all nations, the glory of Christ being seen among God's people here in our city, that gets me out of bed in the morning. It cannot be about us. Well, how do we address these problems? What is the cure? Paul tells us, it is Christ formed in you. Now, this may come as a shock to some of you, but I have never had a baby. Now, there are many experiences in life that I can empathize with, but childbirth isn't one of them. Now, I've been present at a few births, but I think you'd agree that that hardly gives me credit for actually having gone through them myself. So, there's something in me that says Paul's pretty gutsy in verse 19 when he says, I am again in the anguish of childbirth. And he says he's in this anguish again. First Thessalonians 2, Paul describes his care for the church as a nursing mother caring for her children. Now, Paul isn't co-opting a mom's experience. Rather, he's saying that pastoral care for the church brings pain and heartache. Like childbirth, because it's tender and heartfelt like a mom's love. Well, why is that? Again, 1 Thessalonians 2. We share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. It's not something delivered distant on a platter. It's something shared through a life. This is why the personal life of pastors is so important. Because it's not merely teaching information. It's sharing Christ-like spiritual formation from a life shaped in the image of Christ. And while, admittedly, I've never given birth, I think I know what Paul means when he says you pour yourself out for someone only to see them walk away or reject you or attack you. So in verse 20, Paul communicates his heart. I wish, he says, I could be present with you now and change my tone. For I'm perplexed about you. And maybe you've never been a pastor, or maybe you have, but if you've been a parent, you know this, right? 
to be like this. I don't want to be telling you no. I want to be saying yes. I want to be making you happy. I want to give you what you want. But you are perplexing me. I've had it up to here. I wish I could adopt a different tone, but this is not right. It pains me. In other words, Paul, like a parent, is rebuking the church, but he wants to be doing anything else. He doesn't enjoy this ministry. He wants to be with them personally, to be able to communicate with them warmly that he loves them. But his love for them also compels him to speak the truth even when it's painful. He is, as Ephesians 4 says, speaking the truth in love. You see, loving leaders speak the truth in love, out of love for those they serve. Paul isn't trying to leverage them into doing what he wants or leverage them into a better way of living. He's not concerned because they're not doing what he wants. He's concerned because their lives as individuals and their life as a church doesn't reflect the character of Christ. Verse 19 I'm, he says, in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Christ formed in you. What a beautiful description of the Christian life. And Paul is using a brilliant turn of phrase. The forming here literally means to shape, but it can also refer to the growth of a baby in a mother's womb. In other words, we consume the gospel so that Christ is formed in us. So that Christ flows from our lives, our thinking, our relationships, our living. Now, today we've got little reminders, I don't know, sites or emails that tell you, you know, your, your baby is the size of a blueberry, a grape, a grapefruit. I don't know why it's always fruit, but it's always fruit. You know, that avocado-shaped baby. What happens as that child forms in the womb of its mother? The child is formed in her, and then she begins to reflect the shape of that child. This is why you don't ever ask how long you've been pregnant, because you're not sure what's going on inside. But we all know that one evidence of pregnancy over time is a shape a form. So, one translation puts it this way, until you take the shape of Christ. So as Christ is formed in us, we are shaped by him. Paul said it this way in chapter 2, verse 20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Well, how long does it take to make a baby? can take a little time. This kind of growth doesn't happen overnight. And the kind of spiritual growth he's talking about here doesn't happen without effort. I mean, moms who are attentive, they're careful about what they do, about what they eat, about how they exercise, what kind of vitamins they take. Because growing a life is a lot of work. No one ever happens into Christ-likeness either. It takes time, effort, intentionality. I mean, we don't just come to worship for good, clean entertainment. We aren't looking for a spiritual vitamin to get us through a week. We are, over time, through effort, intentionality, and growth, being formed in the image of Jesus. 
and Christ being formed in us. So we fill our time with the word of God, what Paul calls the truth in verse 16. So in our worship, we read the word. We pray the word. We sing the word. We preach the word. And in the Lord's Supper and Baptism, we see the word. Christ is formed in us as God's word dwells in us. But it's not merely theoretical, as in it is something that happens here. Like as we encounter the word of God and we see Christ in the word, Christ is formed in us. But how is it that this takes shape for us, like real shape? Remember how Paul said, become like me. Or as he put it in 1 Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. If someone followed you, would they find a picture of Christ? Christ must so dominate our lives that others come to us, meet us, spend time with us, and see Christ in us. This is why leaders in a church cannot be merely tribal leaders or people we know well. Our deacons, our Sunday school teachers, Formal positions of leadership must be filled with people being shaped, formed, characterized by the image of Jesus. It can't be the normal practice of any congregation to have people in congregationally elected positions who don't wholeheartedly model discipleship. Or who don't faithfully participate in corporate worship. We can't have deacons who aren't models of Christ-like character. We can't have committee members who aren't models of Christ-like character. We can't have Sunday school teachers or volunteers who aren't models of Christ-like character because it's not merely that position that's at stake. People learn who Jesus is from walking with people who walk with Jesus. Follow me as I follow Christ. Oh, brothers and sisters, taste and see that the Lord is good. There is something better than business as usual. There is something better than the way we always do it. Oh, brothers and sisters, Christ is so glorious. The gospel so precious. The spirit so powerful. The father so good. Dig into the word. Soak your soul in the glories of Christ in the gospel. Experience the community of Christ in the community of church until, Paul says, Christ is formed in you. Imitate brothers and sisters who are following Jesus. And when they stumble, look beyond them to Jesus. Look forward to the day when there will be no more stumbling, no more falling, to the one who is able to keep you from falling, will present you faultless before his throne in the presence of God with great joy. We look forward to that day when all of God's no longer tripping children gathered around the throne will sing the praises of the Lamb forever and ever and ever. Christ formed in you. Let's take a moment now.
respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now. God, we come to you and we ask, may people see Christ in us. God, in our life as a church, in our lives personally and individually, Lord, shape us in the image of Christ. Lord, we all know at one level what it's like to wither, to atrophy. We all have those seasons. And yet we know that the power of the Spirit is more powerful than our flesh. So God, help us to walk with Christ, to look to Christ, looking to Jesus, the author, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is today set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God, would you help us do this by your grace? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to close our service now.